CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your friend, your guide through Victorian England, your, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something new. I'm trying to think of something new. Your pal i mean could could it be any lamer than pal no pal was the lamest thing that could have come to mind and it did if you listened to the last episode you know that i was prepping for a trip to las vegas the city of stars is that what vegas is wait what's vegas hold on hold on what does las vegas mean Las Vegas. Uh, Vegas. Oh, the meadows. Well, that doesn't that doesn't jibe with what I know about Las Vegas currently. Although, according to Wikipedia, it had a lot of meadows in 1854 when I guess it was founded. It became a city in 1911. So we've already learned something. We're barely into the podcast and we've already learned that Las Vegas means the meadows. And I said perhaps I would record from Las Vegas, but I was unable to, not because I left my recording equipment behind. In fact, I brought it with me and not because I could not have carved out some time. But because I was in a kind of fever while I was in Las Vegas, now it's the meadows. And so you might say, Michael, was it hay fever? No, it was a poker fever, an endless dripping poker fever in which I basically did nothing but play poker for eight to 10 hours 
a day, sometimes more for the four and a half, five days that I was there. And the next question might be, Michael, how did you do? Look, a good poker player never reveals how much he won or lost. And in fact, in that Kenny Rogers song, The Gambler, I think, uh, and, the, and the best that you can hope for is to die in your sleep. You got to know when to hold them, know when to hold them. I think he says, basically, in the end, you're just trying to break even. You know, we all break even in the end because we all live, we all die. And in point of fact, I'm not a particularly good poker player. So I'll tell you exactly how I did. I basically broke even after expenses and everything. I basically broke even, which in my book, that's a win. But I went to that city, Las Vegas, that has a kind of uh, allure for me, mostly because of the poker and not so much because of all the, the Vegas rigmarole. But it does call to me every now and again, and I heed that call. And when last we left Jude, he was facing the similar siren song. For me, it's poker. For him, it's book learning. And Christminster, for all of its flaws, for all of its heartbreak, for all of its, um, what's the word, a snootiness, maybe, is the word I'm looking for. For all that it has not given to Jude, Jude still thinks he can extract some measure of happiness from that stony, gloomy town. And he says to Sue that he'd like to go back. He'd like to go back, if she doesn't mind, to Christminster. It is the center of the universe, he says to me. Nothing can alter it. It is a dream for him. And he says, perhaps it will soon wake up and be generous, meaning it will perhaps one day treat him and all those who are self-taught with the respect that they deserve. He does not necessarily expect it to treat him that way, but he's hopeful, probably stupidly so. And he says, I'd like to be there in June and I should like to be there by a particular day. Uh, It is... Now, early July, in my life, in real life, in, in when I'm recording this, June has just passed. I was in my own Christminster in June. Jude is heading to his. I begin reading again. His hope that he was recovering proved so far well-grounded that in three weeks they had arrived in the city of many memories, were actually treading its pavements, receiving the reflection of the sunshine from its wasting walls. And because I am an idiot... It turns out that that is the last paragraph in part the fifth. So I read up until the very last paragraph and then chose to stop, not knowing that it was the the penultimate paragraph, read the ultimate paragraph, and now find myself in the ungainly position of having to start a new part, having read one paragraph of the previous part. But... Let's see what it says. It says they were actually treading its pavements, receiving the reflection of the sunshine from its wasting walls. So the, ref- the sun was not shining directly on them because, of course, the sun cannot shine directly on Jude. He is a sufferer. 
he cannot bask in the natural world because the natural world has been at best indifferent to him. But one could argue malignant in some capacity. But interestingly, it it says that Christminster describes its walls as wasting. So this is a continuation of the theme that we've seen from the very beginning of the book. This idea that old ways are falling apart. The wasting walls of Christminster. Um, This old ancient seat of learning is finding itself in decrepitude. And that jibes with everything that we heard in his earlier description of Christminster. Um, the way that although it was lovely in its, in its way to his eyes, there was also a certain amount of decrepitude to it. It was also kind of falling apart. And again, this is about Jude and Sue fighting with the old ways, trying to embrace the new, or rather looking ahead to see what is new and being unsure about what is to come. Both of them have shed their old ideas and are welcoming the new, but the old, the status quo, is continually beating on their backs, just whipping them with recriminations for the way they live, for the kid that they somehow have, or the kids now that they have in marriage, but the one kid, little father time, um, and now Arabella with her church going ways and you know, everything's a disaster, which I love part the sixth or really part sixth at Christminster. Again, I suspect this is the last part of the book because I don't have that many pages left. And here we have a quote, uh, as we always do. And she humbled her body greatly and all the places of her joy she filled with torn hair. Hmm. That doesn't sound good. She filled the places of her joy with torn hair. I mean, we're coming to the conclusion and we've said right from the very beginning, it's going to end badly. So that's one quote. Then there's another one. There are two who decline a woman and I and enjoy our death in the darkness here. Oh, well, I have said murder, suicide from the very beginning. And now we have some inkling that death is approaching. That's from Robert Browning. There are two who decline a woman and I and enjoy our death in the darkness here. So I don't know if he's given away the ending here. Is he saying Jude and Sue are going to die? And that they will enjoy their death in the darkness. That life is impossible for them. And therefore, the only enjoyment they have is in death. Let's read on and find out. Chapter one. On their arrival, the station was lively with straw-hatted young men, welcoming young girls who bore a remarkable family likeness to their welcomers and who were dressed up in the brightest and lightest of raiment. The place seems gay, said Sue. Why, it is Remembrance Day. Jude, how sly of you. You came today on purpose, you little dog. 
Yes, said Jude quietly as he took charge of the small child and told Arabella's boy to keep close to them, Sue attending to their own eldest. I thought we might as well come today as on any other. But I'm afraid it will depress you, she said, looking anxiously at him up and down. Oh, I mustn't let it interfere with our business, and we have a good deal to do before we shall be settled here. The first thing is lodgings. Well, I have to look up Remembrance Day because I have no idea what that is. I assume it's some British British holiday. I mean, what else would it be? They're in Britain. Like, you know, like the Brits that they are. Remembrance Day. What is it? It's just a day to remember people who fought and died in wars. But did that precede? No, it says it was first observed in 1919. So we're going to have to do some more more research. This could take hours. Remembrance Day in Jude the Obscure. Maybe that will help us. Remembrance Day in Jude the Obscure. And now, of course, my computer is being a dick as it has been the day when all the doctoral students graduate from the colleges. Huh. Okay. So uh, it's and that's why it would depress him, I guess, because it's a day of of uh, of graduation of some sort. And it's possible that this is a foreshadowing, right? Uh, Because what is Jude and maybe Sue and maybe all the kids and maybe everybody, what are they going to graduate from? Well, perhaps life itself, you know, if you can't uh, fulfill the academic requirements, you fail. If you can, you graduate. And Jude, I think, has fulfilled all of life's academic requirements. And so if he does, in fact, die at the end of this, it would make sense that he would enjoy his death in the darkness because he has he's done it. You know, he's suffered and graduated. So the first thing is lodgings. Having left their luggage and his tools at the station, they proceeded on foot up the familiar street, the holiday people all drifting in the same direction, reaching the four ways. That's, uh, I think the inn. They were about to turn off to where accommodation was likely to be found when, looking at the clock and the hurrying crowd, Jude said, let us go and see the procession and never mind the lodgings just now. We can get them afterwards. Oughtn't we to get a house over our heads first, she asked. But his soul seemed full of the anniversary, and together they went down Chief Street, their smallest child in Jude's arms, Sue leading her little girl, and Arabella's boy walking thoughtfully and silently beside them. Crowds of pretty sisters in airy costumes and meekly ignorant parents who had known no college in their youth were under convoy in the same direction by brothers and sons bearing the opinion written large on them that no properly qualified human beings had lived on earth till they came to grace it here and now. Well, that sums it up, doesn't it? 
you know, when you go to one of these highfalutin college towns, these Harvards and these Yales and these Princetons, and the graduates come about in their caps and gowns, and they feel as if, I suppose, having never graduated college myself, that they are, in fact, the inheritors of the earth, the first of their kind to be qualified to rule, I guess. Uh, my son graduated high school not long ago, only only weeks ago as of this recording. And on his Remembrance Day, I guess, which would be his graduation day, it was quite celebratory, but there was no, I would say, uh, or very little, I would say, arrogance about the ceremony or among the students who were graduating. It is, after all, a high school graduation. And in my opinion, and please don't tell my son I said this, not that big a deal. You know what I mean? It's not that big a deal. It's not that interesting when you graduate high school anymore. Maybe in the 1890s, 1850s, 1890s, you would have been like, oh, you graduated high school. Good for you. That's that's a great accomplishment. Now it's kind of like I'm much more interested in the people who didn't graduate high school. The people who, you know, in conversation, it comes up. Yeah, I never graduated high school. I started smoking crack in eighth grade and then I dropped out and now I build helicopters like that's a more interesting person than the person who graduated high school because we all graduated high school. But anyway, I am proud of him. Very proud. Very proud, Papa. You know what? I should go give him a hug. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is obscure. Uh, back to the book. My failure is reflected on me. 
by every one of those young fellows, said Jude. A lesson on presumption is awaiting me today. Humiliation day for me. If you, my dear darling, hadn't come to my rescue, I should have gone to the dogs with despair. Well, he just got done saying it wasn't going to bum him out. And now he's saying, yeah, I'm utterly humiliated looking at these people. Come on, dude. She saw from his face that he was getting into one of his tempestuous, self-harrowing moods. It would have been better if we had gone at once about our own affairs, dear, she answered. I am sure this sight will awaken old sorrows in you and do no good. Well, we are near. We will see it now, said he. They turned in on the left by the church with the Italian porch, whose helical columns were heavily draped with creepers, and pursued the lane till there arose on Jude's sight the circular theater with that well-known lantern above it, which stood in his mind as the sad symbol of his abandoned hopes. For it was from that outlook that he had finally surveyed the city of colleges on the afternoon of his great meditation, which convinced him at last of the futility of his attempt to be a son of the university. Today, in the open space stretching between this building and the nearest college, stood a crowd of expectant people. A passage was kept clear through their midst by two barriers of timber extending from the door of the college to the door of the large building between it and the theater. Here's the place. They're just going to pass, cried Jude in sudden excitement. Okay, Jude's being totally bipolar right now. Totally bipolar and weird. It's like, hey, we're here for Remembrance Day. Isn't it going to bum me out? No, it's not going to bum me out. I am so bummed out. Oh, here, they're going to pass right here being a little bit psycho right now and pushing his way to the front, which is not like Jude to push his way anywhere, pushing his way to the front. He took up a position close to the barrier, still hugging the youngest child in his arms while Sue and the others kept immediately behind him. The crowd filled in at their back and fell to talking, joking, and laughing as carriage after carriage drew up at the lower door of the college and solemn, stately figures in blood-red robes began to alight. The sky had grown overcast and livid, and thunder rumbled now and then. Father Time shivered. It do seem like the judgment day, he whispered. They are only learned doctors, said Sue. While they waited, big drops of rain fell on their heads and shoulders, and the delay grew tedious. Sue again wished not to stay. They won't be long now, said Jude, without turning his head. It, I mean, Jude is seeming a little bit like an assassin or something now. Standing out there in the rain, up and down, then up and down, waiting, waiting for the procession to arrive, waiting to see all his thwarted ambitions arrayed before him. It would not surprise me at all if he leapt out at them with a knife, and I hope he does. But the procession did not come forth, and somebody in the crowd to pass the time looked at the facade of the nearest college and said he wondered what was meant by the Latin inscription in its midst. 
Jude, who stood near the inquirer, explained it, and finding that the people all round him were listening with interest, went on to describe the carving of the frieze, which he had studied years before, and to criticize some details of masonry in other college fronts about the city. The idle crowd, including the two policemen at the doors, stared like the Lyconians at Paul. Okay, so that it's got a little uh, it's got a little footnote there. I don't know that I said Lyconians, right? But it looked right. L Y C A O N I A N S. Lyconians. I don't know. Let's see what it says. Uh, the people are reported to have mistaken Paul and Barnabas for Mercury and Jupiter, or at least to have called them. So they're mistaking him for a Greek god? All right. For Jude was apt to get too enthusiastic over any subject in hand. You know how I'm your literary mansplainer? Jude's a total mansplainer. And they seemed to wonder how the stranger should know more about the buildings of their town than they themselves did. Till one of them said, Why, I know that man. He used to work here years ago. Jude Folly, that's his name. Don't you mind? He used to be nicknamed Tudor of St. Slums. Do you mind? Because he aimed at that line of business. He's married, I suppose, then. And that's his child he's carrying. Taylor would know him as he knows everybody. I don't know what that voice is, but I like it. The speaker was a man named Jack Stagg, with whom Jude had formerly worked in repairing the college masonries. Tinker Taylor was seen to be standing near. Having his attention called, the latter cried across the barriers to Jude, You've honored us by coming back again, my friend. Jude nodded. And you don't seem to have done any great things for yourself by going away? <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> the hell does that mean like why would you say to somebody who you haven't seen in a long time well i see you're here again yes i am and you look like shit like why would you do that why are the brits such dicks they can be i don't know how many brits are listening but y'all can be such dicks sometimes it might be the first time i have ever unironically used the word y'all. And I, I think when, when it first formed in my brain, it was to come out ironically, but as it came, as it fell out of my mouth, it felt sincere. Why y'all such dicks? Jude nodded. Uh, oh, Jude, uh, you don't seem to have any great done. Uh, uh, okay. So he says, you haven't done it. You haven't done shit. Jude assented to this also, except found more mouths to fill. This came in a new voice, and Jude recognized its owner to be Uncle Joe, another mason whom he had known. Jude replied good-humoredly good that he could not dispute it, and from remark to remark, something like a general conversation arose between him and the crowd of idlers, during which Tinker Taylor asked Jude if he remembered the Apostles' Creed in Latin still, and the night of the challenge in the public house, if you recall, when Jude was first in Christminster he got drunk with Tinker Taylor and some smart-alecky Goodwill hunting types. Uh, well, not the Goodwill hunting types himself, themselves, but the, the smarty pants, you know, Harvard boys. 
challenged Jude to know to to recite the Apostles' Creed in Latin if he could, and Jude, taking up the role of goodwill hunting, uh, in fact, did so, and then felt such shame afterwards, for he had been drinking and had been a show-off and had had kind of tattered his own intellect by indulging in such silliness, and he felt terrible about it. But fortune didn't lie that way, threw in, threw in Joe. Your powers wasn't enough to carry ye through? Don't answer them any more, entreated Sue. Yeah, because they're being dicks. I don't think I like Christminster. <laughs> I don't think I like Christminster, murmured little time mournfully. Well, he does everything mournfully, as he stood submerged and invisible in the crowd. But finding himself the center of curiosity, quizzing and comment, Jude was not inclined to shrink from open declarations of what he had no great reason to be ashamed of, and in a little while was stimulated to say in a loud voice to the listening throng generally, It is a difficult question, my friends, for any young man, that question I had to grapple with, and which thousands are weighing at the present moment in these uprising times, whether to follow uncritically the track he finds himself in, without considering his aptness for it, or to consider what his aptness or bent may be and reshape his course accordingly." I tried to do the latter, and I failed. But I don't admit that my failure proved my view to be a wrong one, or that my success would have made it a right one, though that's how we appraise such attempts nowadays. I mean not by their essential soundness, but by their accidental outcomes. If I had ended by becoming like one of these gentlemen in red and black that we saw dropping in here by now, everybody would have said, see how wise that young man was to follow the bent of his nature. But having ended no better than I began, they say, see what a fool that fellow was in following a freak of his fancy. It's like poker. I mean, not to go back to poker, but to go back to poker for a second. You make decisions based in poker based on the best available knowledge you have in that moment. And sometimes, even if you make the best possible decision, you lose. And sometimes when you make the dumbest possible decision, you win. And the way you judge your success in poker, ultimately, is not by how much money you've won or lost, but by how you played. And at least that's how I do it. And uh, Jude's basically saying the same thing. He's saying, if I had stayed on my course, I would have been worse off for it. But my honesty compelled me to reevaluate my life and make adjustments. And although I am not one of these splendid fellows walking in his red or black gowns, I can't judge my success or failure based on that, but based only on that I have been honest to myself. My friend Josh Molina is also a poker player. You know him from The West Wing and Scandal, but uh, uh, I probably know Josh best just from poker. 
I mean, we became friends, I think, through poker. Uh, I was on his TV show, Celebrity Poker Showdown. That's how we became friends. And I called him up to ask him about his philosophy on the game. But I should warn you, he is better at poker than he is at making internet phone calls. So the quality isn't amazing. But we had fun. What, what is the appeal of poker to you? I'm starting to feel like I, I didn't have to spend uh, the last 28 hours reading the book. <laughs> I may have I may have overprepared for this uh, interview. Um, the appeal of poker to me is well, number one, it's a way to make some money. Mm-hmm. So the great appeal, yeah, the appeal is to potentially actually uh, put some money in my pocket. Right. And, 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 and after it um, would be, I it need would, that. It would be uh, you would we, we would all be remiss in discussing poker if we did not say it is also a likely way to remove money from your pocket, money that as an unemployed actor, you may need for things other than card playing. Well, that is true. That is true. And it's only because I feel I have a multi-decade history of turning profit that it's okay to take the risk involved in playing poker and and, and go out there anyway, even when I kind of need money. Do you, so do you feel like over time you will make money? I know that over time I have made money again and again and again. This is between uh, you know just you, your listeners, and nobody involved in the internal revenue service. Right. But I do feel that I have made um, consistent profit over time, and so that is not a bad way to spend a good chunk of time when I'm not working. And so, in addition to the uh, your fiduciary responsibility to your family. I'm assuming there's also yes. some enjoyment involved. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I will say it's also one of the few things that calms my mind. I feel like I enter into some sort of meditative state when I play poker and the the ills of the world are at least temporarily shunted aside while I focus on this endeavor that that requires concentration and somehow it somehow soothes my mind. I mean, there's also a simple aspect that I like playing with friends mm-hmm. and, you know, socializing and, you know, I, I try to make it a group of friends. That's the other thing. You, you don't have to be a great poker player to make money. You have to find a group of people that aren't as good as you in order to make money regularly. So it's all very, it's a relative thing. What you're doing is you are selecting a group of like-minded individuals who are sociable and fun and funny, but primarily are worse poker players than you. <laughs> yeah, I never thought about it that way. I think inherent in an invite to my game is some sort of suggestion <laughs> that I think I'm better than you. But wait a minute, because yeah. you invite me um, to your game all the time. <laughs> that is true. I was say, that, that said, that's not, that's not the, <laughs> that's the, not the greatest criterion or the most important prerequisite. So uh, at my home game, I, I think I do invite people whose game I uh, certainly respect, and you would be among those people. <laughs> I play in another regular game that I don't host, and which I feel I have a, a, a and time has shown I have a strong edge, which I enjoy. Now I also go to the poker clubs and play with strangers, and you never know what you're going to get when right. you play at uh, at these casinos, and I enjoy that as well. I prefer playing in the casinos because I don't feel as bad about taking. 
if I'm winning, taking strangers' money than I do about taking money from my other unemployed friends. And I feel like I can bring my A game to bear in a casino where I don't necessarily feel the same way at a, at a home game. Wow. So that this is interesting. I found what poker players call a leak in your game. And now I think I realize where I do have an advantage over you, which is that I never, ever, ever feel that all bad about taking someone's money. Uh, you know, even if our, uh, it doesn't matter against whom I'm playing or how badly I know they need money uh, <laughs> at the poker table. <laughs> right. uh, you know, this is another, I just realized also another thing that appeals to me. I feel like I'm generally a big-hearted, nice person and honest in real life. And there's something freeing about sitting down at a poker table where I feel like it's okay. Wink, wink. We all know we're now going to lie to each other and be mean and try to take each other's money. And so I kind of I enjoy the sort of sense of freedom you get at the poker table to, to be other than you normally are in your regular life. See, I've been struggling with that a little, where what is inherent is the idea that to maximize your profits, you are also maximizing deception and ruthlessness. Mm. See, that's, that's part of its appeal to me. I love that. I mean, I'm not going to shiv somebody and then, you know, grab their chips and put them in my pocket. That would be over the edge. Mm-hmm. But short of that, everything else you do at the table in order to... to Take your friend's money is, is a big thumbs up. I like that. You actually are saying that when you play in a home game and with your friends, but every time you win a pot, you feel a little bit bad, or is it, is it down to a specific person? Like, I, I know Josh really needs money. Oh, no. It, it would it, – it, it's 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 person dependent. Like, I, I, I would never feel bad about taking any amount of money off of you. But that's only okay. – it's only so because I – it's only because – yeah, but it's only – it actually has to do with my fondness for you. It's only because I like you so much that I feel no compunctions about uh, bending you over a table and fucking every last dollar out of you. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a sexual element and, that, and oh, I do feel flattered. <laughs> well, it's consensual. I mean we're both at the home game. So um, thank you for sharing your thoughts about poker. Uh, if you even cracked open a copy of Jude the Obscure in preparation for this, I apologize. And I and I seriously doubt you did. Uh, well, you know, again, I've polarized my my declarative statements as well. So I'm either I either really did read the entire book or I didn't crack it open. <laughs> I think we both know what that I'll is. I'll leave you to decide. I call your bluff. Um, um, thank you, Josh. <laughs> sure. I love you. Love you. Josh Molina talking about poker and really talking about life. So we'll think about all of that when we continue reading. We're just going to take a little break first and then back on Obscure. And we're back. So let's continue. However, it was my poverty and not my will that consented to be beaten. It takes two or three generations to do what I tried to do in one. And my impulses, affections, vices, perhaps they should be called, were too strong not to hamper a man without advantages. Who should be as cold-blooded as a fish and as selfish as a pig to have a really good chance of being one of his country's worthies? 
You may ridicule me. I am quite willing that you should. I am a fit subject, no doubt. But I think if you knew what I have gone through these last few years, you would rather pity me. And if they knew, he nodded towards the college at which the dons were severally arriving. It is just as possible they would do the same. He do look ill and worn out. It is true, said a woman. <laughs> Sue's face grew more emotional. But though she stood close to Jude, she was screamed. I may do some good before I am dead, be a sort of success as a frightful example of what not to do, and so illustrate a moral story, continued Jude, beginning to grow bitter, though he had opened serenely enough. I was, perhaps, after all, a paltry victim to the spirit of mental and social restlessness that makes so many unhappy in these days. Don't tell them that, whispered Sue with tears at perceiving Jude's state of mind. You weren't that. You struggled nobly to acquire knowledge, and only the meanest souls in the world would blame you. Jude shifted the child into a more easy position on his arm and concluded, And what I appear, a sick and poor man, is not the worst of me. I am in a chaos of principles, groping in the dark, acting by instinct and not after example. Eight or nine years when I came here first, I had a neat stock of fixed opinions, but they dropped away one by one, and the further I get, the less sure I am. I doubt if I have anything more for my present rule of life than following inclinations which do me and nobody else any harm, and actually give pleasure to those I love best. There, gentlemen. Since you wanted to know how I was getting on, I have told you. Much good may it do you. I cannot explain further here. I perceive there is something wrong somewhere in our social formulas. What it is can only be discovered by men or women with greater insight than mine, if indeed they ever discover it, at least in our time. For who knoweth what is good for man in this life, and who can tell a man what shall be better after him under the sun? Uh, and there's another, another footnote, 50, uh, 58, 53. Uh, it's Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. I'm just going to reread that because I, it, yeah, it's from the Bible and it's probably smart. For who knoweth? What is good for man in this life? And who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? Hear, hear, said the populace. Well, well preached, said Tinker Taylor, and privately to his neighbors. Why, one of them jobbing passons swarming around here that takes the services when our head reverends want a holiday wouldn't have discarsed such doctrine for less than a guinea down. Hey, I'll take my oath, not one of them would. And then he must have had it wrote down for him. And this only a working man. So he's just said a lot here, hasn't he? Something that we still struggle with. I struggle with all the time. And I think every person of a certain age comes to a similar conclusion, which is you enter this world uninformed. At a certain point, you 
gain some insight, your opinions become fixed and you begin your journey or you, you, you continue, continue your journey with those opinions in mind, generally by your, I don't know, late teens, early twenties, just like Jude, you set out into the world, a kind of idealist. You have an idea of how things are. And then one by one, just like Jude, those ideas get shorn away. If, if I think you are honest with yourself, because I think there's a lot of people uh, and I have been like this at times, who are incredibly stubborn with their own ideas and incredibly stubborn either with the way they were raised or the kind of, you know, ideas that they were uh, uh, subjected to as a child. And they do not scrutinize. We do not scrutinize our own opinions enough. And there's a joy in that, isn't there? It's fucking great when you don't do that because you're, you're right. You know what I mean? It's like you can go through life feeling absolutely correct about everything. And that would be amazing to go through life feeling like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I got it all figured out. Like these are the rules. I follow them. And I'm doing great. Or these are the rules and I'm doing my best to follow them. And yeah, sometimes I, I fuck up, but Hey, these are the rules and I'm, and I'm doing my best. Um, and I know they are right because they were taught to me. But many people, myself included at times, I mean, I've been on both sides of this, end up questioning the rules themselves, end up questioning the whole structure on which they're based. And when that happens, you end up like Jude, acting by instinct and not after example. You, fi- you find yourself floundering and you find yourself looking around going, wait, I don't know what I'm doing. And, and all I'm trying to do here is take care of myself and those around me. And I don't know how to judge my own life even because I've done my best to follow what I thought was right. What, what seemed correct in the moment. I played my hand to the best of my ability. And I know that my own abilities are lacking, but all I can do is do my best. And maybe you win and maybe you lose. But how do we judge ourselves without judging the outcome? It's a very difficult thing to do. I mean, you guys have heard uh, my, I I assume you have read between the lines and maybe I've talked about it in some of these episodes, my own just like depression about all kinds of shit. But you're doing your best every moment to overcome, to make good decisions, to please yourself and others. Sometimes to deny pleasure to yourself for the pleasure of others. Sometimes you act selfishly and you please yourself just in spite of others. And sometimes your shitty little rat dog, you know, just sits by you and doesn't care about any of it. Just wants to be loved. Well, that's all we're trying to do. That's all Jude's doing is just trying to love. Because ultimately that's what he's left with. He's left with an abiding love for Sue, for his kids, it's unusual for Jude to unburden himself in this way, and particularly unusual to do it in public like that. Jude, who is a very private man, who has spent his life in obscurity, which is to say in a kind of isolation known only to very few, 
but impactful nonetheless, I guess, on the lives that he has touched. I mean, Tinker Taylor and uh, what's his face, Joe, I guess, like they remember him. People know him. He leaves a mark. He is remembered for his intellect and perhaps for his pretensions and his presumptions. And now he stands in front of everything that he wanted to be and feeling, I guess, if not contented, because he's certainly not that, then at least if he's not contented uh, and he's not quite at peace, because I think contented and at peace are basically the same thing. He is to a degree satisfied with the way he has conducted his life up until this point. And when it's thrown back in his face that he wasn't as successful as maybe he thought he would be and carried himself in a kind of arrogant manner in his days in Christminster, he replies, yeah, you're right. But I, I played my hand the best that I could. I mean, it really feels like he's about to die, doesn't it? Isn't it gorgeous? Like we just feel like, oh, something's going to happen. Lightning's going to strike him. I mean, the big drops of rain, he's just going to get knocked down dead. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you know, we are in part the sixth. We're back at Christminster. There's only a few pages, not a few pages, but not, you know, several episodes worth of pages left. But it does feel like Jude is coming to the end of his life. He's gone through sickness. He's ill. He's poor. He is obscure. We've got these kids. He's back at Christminster, the seat of his dreams. And he's got Sue. Sue, who's saying, don't give them the satisfaction of admitting your failure. And, and Jude saying, I'm not a failure. We don't know whether I have failed or succeeded. I only did what I could. And that's all of us. At the end of the day, look, we're all going to break even. It is the manner in which we play our hands that matters. How will Jude play his? Well, we're almost at the end. We'll see. As we gallop towards the end, will Jude be struck by lightning? Will he withdraw a saber from his pants and uh, go on a, a knife massacre? Will Father Time put the hex on him and strike him dead where he stands? Find out next time on another Too Good to Be True episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and subscribe, won't you, in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you do not miss one exciting episode of Judy Obscure. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedron. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black. <laughs>